It's good to see you guys. If you're visiting with us today, we are really glad that you're here to help us kick off the Christmas season. And it's already been a great morning. I love seeing those kids up here singing. Uh, somebody called this the cutest Sunday of the year. I'd say that's a pretty good description. Uh, now, while I'm at it, I need to give a shout out to the Plum Creek Middle School, High School, and College students who took over our worship service last weekend. Those guys did a phenomenal job. And man, we just appreciate our young people here. We thank God for our kids, for our students, uh, for the volunteers that work with them, and for our next gen staff. We are really blessed. Well, we are starting a new sermon series this morning, and to some extent, this is a Christmas series, He Shall Reign. But it's actually much bigger than that, because we're going to see how Christmas fits into the biggest story of all time, God's kingdom story. And of course, that story, it didn't begin in the little town of Bethlehem. It began way back before creation, and it will continue throughout eternity. And everywhere you look, on every page of God's kingdom story, you will find a name. It's a powerful name. The name above all names. The name of Jesus. And you know, every name has a meaning. That's true of Jesus. And it's also true of you and me. Uh, for example, my name is Doug, which is short for Douglas. And do you know what my name means? I learned this when I was a kid. Douglas is a Scottish name that means from the black water. How cool is that? <laughs> when I see that, I, I get this picture in my mind. I, I remember this cheesy old monster movie from the 1950s, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Anybody seen that? Now, the, the creature doesn't get a specific name in that movie, so I'd like to suggest that we call him Douglas. <laughs> Just a suggestion. Now, as I got older, I learned that there is a different meaning for my name, slightly different. Uh, one time, somebody gave me a bookmark, and it said Douglas at the top, and right underneath it said Seeker of Light. Kind of a positive spin. I appreciate that. And it makes sense, because if you're from the black water, you probably would be a seeker of light. <laughs> I also think about a Bible verse, 1 Peter 2.9. That's where... God called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is a Douglas verse if I ever saw one. Now, I love learning about different names. I'd love to learn the meaning of your name. But right now, we're here to focus on Jesus. And do you happen to know the meaning of the name Jesus? You don't have to look very far. You can go to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew's account of the Christmas story, uh, Joseph gets a message from an angel of the Lord, and the angel says, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yeshua, and Yeshua means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to save us from sin and death. And so that name is very appropriate. But Jesus also has many other names, many other titles. And we're going to look at just a few of those today. Uh, 
We'll start by reading a passage of Scripture that is the basis for this series. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. That's where we'll be through the whole month of December. We're going to break this down a little bit at a time. Now, this particular passage is not usually associated with Christmas, but if you look closely, Christmas is in there. So, let's read this together. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. And as you follow along, see if you can spot where Christmas shows up. Here we go. Now, Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing specifically to a group of Christians. And he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, I love this. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's this Big picture version of the story of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. And did you happen to find Christmas in these verses? Did you see it? I'll give you a hint. It's somewhere in verses 6 and 7. So let's bring those verses back up on the screen and, and we'll read those again. Paul said, we should follow the example of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to, its, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So there it is, right? At the end of verse 7, being made in human likeness. That's what happened at Christmas. Jesus became human. And this is very big news. Why? It's very big news because of the beginning of verse 6. Jesus was in very nature God. That's a pretty audacious claim. And it also goes along with another name that Jesus was given, the name Emmanuel. In Matthew 1 verse 23, we read this, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I really appreciate the way Matthew defines these names for us. That's really helpful. And this new name is very significant. Emmanuel means God with us. So according to that name, Jesus was no ordinary man. He was literally God with us. And you know, for thousands of years, even Christians have wrestled with this. Even Christians have been confused about the identity of Jesus. Uh, early on, some Christians said, yeah, Jesus was truly God in the flesh. But others said, eh, no, nah, we think he was a normal human being, but he was used by God in a special way. However, if you look at the overall teaching of Scripture, if you, if you look at the consistent message in God's Word, 
There's really no room for different interpretations. Uh, Philippians 2 is a perfect example. Jesus was, in very nature, God. The word nature there is translated from the original Greek word morphe. And morphe refers to the very essence of something. Not, Not what you see on the surface, but what a thing truly is in nature and character. So, in essence... Jesus was God, not just a a human who was appointed by God for a special purpose. And this one concept, it's enough to blow your mind, so we need to spend a little time here. And Philippians 2, it introduces us to this idea, it's helpful, but to dig deeper, we need to go to a different place in Scripture. Uh, We're going to look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Now, John gives us another big picture version of the story of Jesus, and it's an amazing thing to read. And we'll spend the rest of our time in John chapter 1. So if you want to turn there in your Bible or in your Bible app, let's read this together. John 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I I told you that John is telling us the story of Jesus, but he begins talking about this mysterious and very significant person known as the Word. And if we're going to understand this story at all, we we need to understand what John means when he says the Word. So let's look at what we've learned so far. What has John told us about the Word? Several things, right? First, the Word is a person. He is a he. John, John says he, not it, was with God in the beginning. But this person is, is not some ordinary garden variety human being. According to verse 1, the Word is divine. The Word was God, not like God. John says the Word was God. Here's the next thing we learn. The Word was never created. He was with God in the beginning. The beginning of what? Well, the beginning of time itself. He predates all things that have a beginning. He has no starting point. He has always been. Now, our minds don't have the capacity to understand anything or anyone that has no beginning. So, let's, let's move on to the next one. Uh, John also tells us that the Word is the source of all life. Everything was made through Him. Life itself is in Him, which means He can give life to anyone or, or anything He wants to. So, John makes these four big claims But we need to mention one more. John reveals the identity of the Word. The Word is Jesus Christ. The Word is yet another name or another title for Jesus. Now, John doesn't specifically say that in verses 1 through 5, what we just read. We have to jump down to verse 14, where he says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. By the way, there's Christmas again. 
Jesus came to earth as a human. Uh, He is God in the flesh. And then John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is a very different version of the Christmas story, isn't it? John doesn't mention Bethlehem. We've got no angels, no shepherds, no manger. You have to flip over to Matthew or Luke to find those things. But why would John leave out those details? They're they're not in his gospel. What's he doing there? Well, John wants us to see the epic scale of this story. Like I said, the story stretches back before the beginning of time, and it continues throughout eternity. And John makes it very clear. You and I are not the center of this story. You see that? It's it's about Jesus. It's about God himself, the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise. And it's very interesting. It's interesting to me that John is in no hurry to mention the name Jesus. First, he wants us to get to know Jesus as the Word. So let's, let's do this. Let's think about this name for a second. Where does it come from? What does it mean? Well, back in the first century, the word word was loaded with meaning. Now, John wrote his gospel in the Greek language, and the Greek translation for word is logos. Actually, if you want to be picky, you would say logos, but we're going to Americanize it a little bit, and we'll say logos. And uh, that probably sounds familiar to many of us. What is logos? It's a Christian bookstore in Alexandria. It's right on 27. We know that. But if you were in the first century, you would, you would have a, a deeper understanding of this word. To the Jews, the word was the method God used for creating the world. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The, the, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He spoke creation into being. So, according to the Jewish scholars, the Word was directly connected to God Himself. But let's say you weren't Jewish. Let's say you were a Greek person in the first century. If that was the case, you you probably would have heard some of the teachings of the Greek philosophers. And they talked a lot about the Logos. The Greek philosophers were deep thinkers. They they would uh, look out at the universe and they would think to themselves, wow, there there really seems to be some kind of design and order behind this world. And they didn't necessarily believe in a personal God, but the Greeks did believe that the universe was designed to work in a certain way. So they developed this idea of the logos. For the Greeks, the logos was the purpose or the logic or the reason for life. Now, I realize we've started to wade into philosophy here, and philosophy might not be your favorite subject, so we're going to shift gears a little bit and make this really practical. Uh, You may have noticed that I have a bottle of Tide detergent up here with me, and one of you uh, donated this bottle for our Christmas collection to help local families in need, and we really appreciate that. And uh, by the way, if you're like me and you haven't brought in those items yet, uh, don't feel bad. I'm right there with you. But remember, we need everything here by next Sunday. But back to the bottle. I have kind of a weird question. What is the logos for Tide? What, what is 
the reason or the purpose or the logic for this object? Well, I'll tell you. The logos is written all over the bottle. The answers are all right here. Why does Tide exist? How do you use it? What are the ingredients? What are some dangers that you want to avoid? It's all right here. In fact, uh, as someone who usually doesn't read detergent bottles, I learned something this week. I saw it on the back. Uh, you know, you got this cap here. You pour the detergent into the cap. But, you know, gets, the liquid gets in there and it needs to be cleaned out. And, and here's what it says. To clean out the cap, toss it in the wash with your load. I was like, that's genius. I never would have thought of that. So it changed my life. Um, that is the logos for Tide. Philosophy isn't that complicated. Now, let's take this idea and apply it to you and me. What is the logos for human life? That's the real question, isn't it? And of course, you get all kinds of answers to that question. You could ask different people. You could go to different periods in history. So many opinions. Today, though, I'll give you just three examples. Here in our time, there's a mindset that has become pretty common. A lot of people look at this question, what is the logos, the purpose, the reason, the logic for human life? And they'll say, good luck, you got to figure that out for yourself. In other words, it's on you. It's your job to determine the meaning of life or whether or not life has any meaning. And yeah, your answer may be different than my answer, but that's okay because there's not really just one version of the truth. We all get to decide what's true for ourselves. We have to pick our own logos. Now, that idea is called relativism. Like I said, it's, it's very popular today. But there is a huge problem with relativism. It doesn't work. It breaks down. There are so many contradictions with this concept. I see it all the time. Uh, a relativist might say, yeah, everyone should decide what's right and wrong for themselves. We shouldn't impose our beliefs on others. Then, at the same time, that relativist will still have very strong opinions about right and wrong. Uh, Watch what happens when you, you ask a question like this. Is it appropriate for our culture to tell other cultures what to believe and what to do and how to live? And they might say, well, no, that's, that's not appropriate. It's not our business. But then go a little deeper and say, so what about a culture that oppresses or mistreats women? And the men in charge act like that's normal and okay. Should we say, yeah, that's fine. Do whatever you want. The relativist will usually say, no, of course not. We can't approve of something like that. It's wrong. By definition, true relativism lets everyone choose their own worldview, their own logos. But nobody really wants to give that power to everyone. There's a voice inside us that says, no, some things are wrong no matter what. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. In the end, relativism breaks down. So what, what's another option? Well, another choice is to believe in something called absolute truth. Now, absolute truth, it's not tied to human beliefs or opinions. It's true whether you believe it or not. 
It's true whether you like it or not. So what does absolute truth bring to the Logos question? Well, some people would say this. The Logos is the moral code that God has given us, what He's written into the universe. We don't get to write our own instruction book. He, it comes from God, and our job is to follow His instructions. This is called moralism, and certain religious people really like this idea. However, this is not the logos of John chapter 1. Just like relativism, relativism, the moralism also breaks down, and I'll tell you why. When human beings try to live up to God's moral code, live up to His standard, we always fail. Nobody's perfect. We all know that. How many of us have followed all of God's commands every moment of every day? None of us, right? The Bible says this. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we sin, it's not enough to say, oops, sorry about that. No, our sin brings terrible consequences. Our sin brings darkness into the world. Our sin severs our relationship with God. And if nothing is done to repair that broken relationship, it remains broken for eternity. So, moralism may seem like a good answer for the logos of human life, but it's not a good answer because it leaves us with no hope. It leaves us without God. But that's why John chapter 1 is such great news. God was not content to spend eternity separated from us. He has an unstoppable love for each one of us, an unstoppable love for you. We don't deserve that love. It's a love that we can't comprehend. But because of God's unstoppable love, He worked out a plan to restore our broken relationship with Him. This is why the Word became flesh. This is why Jesus was made in human likeness. So, what is the Logos for human life? Well, John says that there's one answer. The Logos is found in the person of Jesus. It's not a principle. It's not a set of rules or ideas. It's not relativism. It's not moralism. This is the gospel. There's a very important phrase at the end of John 1.14. We read this just a few minutes ago. It says that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Now, the, the truth part is that God has given us a moral code. God has set up this universe with certain rules and, and a certain design. That's the truth part. But... The great news of the gospel is that Jesus also came full of grace. We deserve to be rejected by God because of our sin. But despite what we deserve, Jesus made it possible for us to be accepted by God. And how did he do that? Well, you've got to look past Christmas and look to the cross. That's where Jesus died to take the punishment that you and I deserved because of our sin. He died and suffered so that we wouldn't have to. And then on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave, he walked out of the tomb, and he proved that all of John's claims were true. Jesus is the Word. 
full of grace and full of truth. Now, for some of you, uh, John chapter 1 might sound familiar because John chapter 1 sounds a lot like Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. Did you notice that? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. Now, that similarity is deliberate, but why does John echo those old words from Genesis? Well, John builds on the creation story to help us understand Jesus. Uh, Genesis 1 and John 1 both refer to creation, that, that time when God originally made the universe. But John 1 adds another layer. John points to recreation. And here's what that means. All of us were created by God, right? He brought us into his universe. And his universe operates by his rules. But somewhere along the way, you and I took God's instruction manual and we said, eh, I don't need this. We threw it out the window because we wanted to do what we wanted to do. We rejected the logos, the purpose and the logic and the reason for life. And when we did that, we made a huge mess. I want to go back to this Tide bottle real quick. I learned a lot this week as I read this bottle. I found a disturbing warning on the back. Listen to this. It says, do not reuse this package for dispensing beverages or other liquids. So if you were planning to serve hot chocolate at your Christmas party out of a Tide bottle, you better think again. This warning is here for a reason. And seriously, warnings are given for a reason. When we disregard a warning, somebody gets hurt. And we've all done that, haven't we? We've disregarded God's warnings at one time or another. We've, we've all done that. And that meant somebody got hurt. You or someone else. When we ignored God's warnings, we traded life and light for death and darkness. And after we made that trade, our only hope was recreation, rebirth. All of us were originally created by God through Jesus, but the gospel says we can also be recreated through Jesus. And listen, we're not talking about abstract ideas here. This stuff will change your life right here and right now. I want to share one more way that John 1 connects with Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And when God did that, when he brought light into existence, darkness was defeated, wasn't it? A beam of light, it always cuts through the darkness, not the other way around. Darkness doesn't cut through light. So then we have a parallel in John chapter 1, verse 5. John said, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Similar idea. Except this time, the word light is not just light. It's another title for Jesus. Jesus is the light. So do you see how this works? Genesis 1 refers to physical darkness. John 1 refers to spiritual darkness. 
Okay, so what are we talking about there? Spiritual darkness. What exactly is that? Spiritual darkness includes all the pain, all the suffering, all the devastation that has entered this world because of our sin. And man, the sad truth is there is so much spiritual darkness in this world. We know that. You see it on the news. War, crime, cruel people doing cruel things. There's also a lot of spiritual darkness that doesn't make it to the news. Selfishness, hostility, broken families, broken lives, confusion, hopelessness. Spiritual darkness is all around us. As we wrap up today, I want to look at some good news. But first, we need to look straight at the bad news. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look back over 2023. From January through December, where have you seen darkness in this world? Where have you seen darkness in your life? And I'm talking about spiritual darkness. Anything that came as a result of sin. Has someone or something caused you pain? Or have you brought pain to someone else? Do you remember a specific event? Or maybe it's been a whole season. Maybe you're still in that season right now. Whatever you're thinking of, I want you to apply the truth of John chapter 1. I want you to think about the Word, this divine person who existed before time began, the one who originally brought life to you and me, and the one who brings new life. And then... Think about that darkness, the darkness that's around you or even within you. And then believe, really believe these words, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In a contest between light and darkness, light always wins and Jesus is the light. He will defeat the darkness every single time, every single time. You might know that John wrote several books in the Bible, in the New Testament. There's the Gospel of John. There's also the book of Revelation. And then there's 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in 1 John chapter 4, this same person who wrote about Jesus as the Word and the light, he also writes these words, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Hold on to those words. This means the darkness cannot and will not overcome the light. The light always wins. So here's our bottom line today. Through Jesus, God calls you out of darkness and into the light. It's kind of like the name Douglas, isn't it? But this is what God wants for you. When you turn your life over to him and put your life in his hands, he can and he will overcome the darkness in your life. We also need to be clear about something. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you haven't experienced that victory yet. You have to make the conscious decision to let him take away your sin, uh, remove that darkness. But for those of you who have crossed that line, if you've put your faith in Jesus and, and you're living for him, man, 
go ahead and claim the promise. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So don't feel like that, that darkness will overwhelm you. Jesus is bigger than that. He's bigger than whatever you've been dealing with over this past year. Pain, suffering, even death. When death hits close to home, Jesus can overcome that too. No one else can make that promise, but he can. I'm so excited that we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus over the next few weeks. And I'm also excited about what we're going to do. We're going to keep this big picture in mind. Because right now, we are in the middle of an epic story. And as long as we welcome Jesus into our lives, this story will have a great ending. Because Jesus is the one who saves Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Word, and He is the light, and He is our hope now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we are trying to understand things that are really beyond us today, but we know that Your Word tells us what we need to know. And Lord, I I pray that We have a a more accurate picture of Jesus today, and I pray that uh, we will, either for the first time or again, uh, be uh, reminded to truly give our lives to you, to put our trust in you, not in the things of this world, to let you be the one to overcome our darkness. And I pray for someone who, who may be listening right now and needs to make that decision for the first time. I pray that they will follow your leading and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.